This idea of just like ignore it and get on with it, there's no evidence to suggest that's what we should do. Money is never just money. Money is control, it's identity, it's power, it's fear. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with The Megaverse. It's a privilege to welcome the incredible Dr. Linda Papadopoulos to the show today. Dr. Linda is a psychologist, an author, and a broadcaster. Known for decoding the psychology behind news and trends, she's not just a top academic, but also the brain behind a successful counseling psychology program. Imagine being tapped by the government for a deep dive into the impact of young people's sexualization. Well, that's Dr. Linda's level of influence, and it doesn't stop there. When she's not rocking the academic scene, she's the go-to consultant for big brands like Dior and Speedo, offering the lowdown on consumer behavior. You've likely spotted her on British TV, sharing insightful commentary on everything related to psychology. Meet Dr. Linda, an academic powerhouse, TV guru, and your guide to the real world of psychology. Ready for a wild ride through the mind of this everyday superhero? Let's cue the music. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, thank you very much for coming to join us on the show today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I've never met you. I've followed you on TV. You seem to be this lady with all these words of wisdom that seem to guide <laughs> people to understand things that they didn't really know about themselves. But for everyone in, in Dubai that maybe hasn't heard of you before, can you give me one minute on your qualifications and why we should be listening to you today? Gosh. Um, okay, I, I guess... In a nutshell, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist. I did my first degree in Canada. I did my clinical training, my PhD in the UK. Um, I, I'm a bit of a nerd, right? So it's really interesting how my whole kind of TV career came up. So I was um, a very prolific researcher. I had a lot of sort of publications. Some of my research was profiled on, uh, on a documentary in the UK. And then the producers of a brand new concept, God, it's over 20 years ago now, saw me called Big Brother and said, can you come on the show and discuss behavioral science, which is, of course, what I am. Now, it's really interesting, Spencer, because up until that point, it kind of feels weird to say today when we speak so much more openly about mental health and wellness back then, it was not spoken about. You got you had a few shows maybe, you know, that would refer to physical health, but nothing like that. So I remember I go on this show and I begin to explain human behavior. And it's such a success that I'm getting so many phone calls into the university. I was head of a, the doctoral program at London Med at the time that I had to take on 
um, a team of people to kind of help with that. And it was fascinating to see because at the time, a lot of people were saying, well, you can't take psychological principles and, you know, just speak about them on TV. Um, and I was like, well, why not? This is precisely, you know, when, when I publish in academic papers, I get the other doctors, the other psychologists to read them, which is great. When I speak on TV about what postnatal depression is. It's the woman at home with a crying baby that feels she's losing her mind that's gonna hear it. When I speak about anxiety on a, on a news program, it's the person that hasn't left their house because they've been so debilitated by it and they don't know what to do that's gonna hear it. So it became then a passion to take what is in these sort of academic texts and, and these, you know, these periodicals that, you know, that, that few people read and translate it in a way that's tangible and that's usable for the person on the other side of the screen. And that's what I've been doing for the last, gosh, 25 years now. Wow. You don't look old enough to be doing this in 25 that's years. Stop. Compliments. <laughs> okay. Um, with all of that experience, I, I want to kind of take the conversation today into the workplace because I think a lot of the time, I, I definitely as I was working my way through my career, this kind of stuff, <clears throat> this didn't didn't exist. It was kind of like stiff up a lip, roll your sleeves up. Bad news, dust yourself down, live to fight another day. But yet we see, you know, some of the highest rates of suicide between men between the age of 50 and 55 that are in professional environments. And so... I'm always fascinated by, uh, first of all, what are the psychological traits to make a successful entrepreneur, a successful leader, mm. a successful business person? But then also, what is it that impacts them along the way so much that causes them the mental health struggles that they face, but they refuse then to share and open up about it? Uh, I think that's a brilliant question and and, and I think really timely because to your point, yeah, it is the number one killer, suicide, uh, you know, across a certain age, that, that age group amongst men. It's uh, And a big part of it, a big part of it, I think, Spencer, is the sense of entitlement that we feel over being able to discuss problems. And I think this varies on whether we're men and we're women. It varies on our culture. It varies on whether we're old or we're young. Uh, but ultimately, if I don't feel entitled to say I'm in pain, then what ends up happening is not only is that pain not addressed, but I begin to feel less than about myself for having that pain. And that, of course, complicates it and it increases it. And very sadly, we, we live in a world, and I think you, you referred to men specifically, I think we 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 live in a world where we tell men, you know, to just get on with it. And I think there, there's something to be said of resilience, and we'll definitely speak about that. I think I'm a huge believer in that. But resilience doesn't mean pretending my arm isn't broken and like dancing around. It means being able to say, hey, my arm's broken. Give me a minute. Let me put it in a cast and then we'll continue. That's resilience. It's not ignoring it. It's not pretending it isn't there. It's having that sense of entitlement of something isn't good. I'll figure it out and I will continue, but I'm entitled to make space for it the way that you would for a broken arm. But very sadly, I think we've done this thing where we've separated mental and physical health, right? So we understand, you know, the sore throat or we understand, you know, the broken leg. What's depression really? You know, what's anxiety? And I think because, I think the other side, of course, is that we, we throw around these terms so easily that actually when people genuinely have an issue, they, they, they feel, well, everyone says they're depressed, so maybe it's just me. And these, these conditions, when you are suffering them, you're going through them, there's a qualitative, not just a quantitative difference. There's a qualitative difference with one's experience. So the more we educate people to have, number one, the ability to spot what's going on, right? So, 
you speak about how does anxiety manifest? Well, most people think, oh, I just have butterflies in my stomach and I'm worried. Sometimes anxiety, you know how it manifests? Procrastination. I can't sit down and do this. Sometimes it manifests in physical illness. My, my PhD was in something called psychoneuroimmunology. We looked at how our psychological state affected the skin. So people have, you know, uh, their psoriasis flaring up, their eczema, you know, people that have IBS, we see it happening in their body. So being able to spot the symptoms, and then being able to have the language and the entitlement to ask for for support. Because the more support we give, and we have reams of data in this, Spencer, you know, whether we're we're co-workers or whether we're employers, the more support we give someone, not only the more productive does someone become, but the happier and more contented they are at the workplace. Therefore, the, the longer you have, you have less attrition and you're able to kind of have an environment where not only it, it's great for the people involved, but it's actually potentially great for the business as a whole. So this idea of just like ignore it and get on with it, there's no evidence to suggest that's what we should do. You're right. I spoke about women, men at the beginning and not women as well. And that's wrong because my business partner is a woman and she carries the weight of the business on her shoulders for different companies on a regular basis. So this is not a, not a man-only thing. Understanding, first of all, what the outlet is, where people go, what, what do people do? And they, you know, they start to feel that because you're right. This is, am I depressed? Am I just a bit down? Am I, am I just feeling low because the weather's changed? Well, what is it? And how do I diagnose that myself? And, and should I even bother diagnosing? My, well, if I diagnose it myself, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. It's because that, that's doom and gloom. So I'm just having a bad day. How do we get help around that? But also in, in a workplace environment, who's trained <laughs> to give me some guidance around that area. You take a, a, a big corporation, mm. you know, is the HR department trained to understand that? Is the, is the learning and development, you know, who, who, who really is trained to give me that? Or is that a me thing that I've got to go and deal with? Okay, so I recognise that maybe I've got anxiety. I recognise I've, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm down, I'm not performing well. I've recognised it, so I go off to go see the doctor to see what I can do about it. How, how does it work in your mind and how should it work in an ideal world? I think the way it works for a lot of people currently is they feel unwell, they have this sort of low riding sort of anxiety or, or depression that kind of, so they're, they're still functioning with it, but nothing feels the same. Things don't, you know, things feel a little bit harder than they should. There's very little enjoyment, but you keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, because the underside of anxiety is avoidance, you begin to avoid the things that can actually help. Going out, seeking social support, speaking to friends, your world becomes smaller. Um, you then possibly use dysfunctional methods to cope. Um, so whether that is I don't know, medicating with alcohol or eating too much or, you know, even shopping online because you're getting those dopamine hits, right? So we know there's, we can go into this in more detail. There's several different neurotransmitters that make us happy. Very sadly, the, the big one that we, you know, we kind of tend to lean towards is dopamine because that just gives us that rise. But it's usually stuff that then becomes addictive and isn't really looking at the, the problem at hand. Then depending on your workplace, to your point, um, if you're lucky enough that you have a great HR department that has, you know, the ability to kind 
kind of offer you, uh, whether it's sort of online counseling or sort of referrals for the things that might help. Um, that's great. In many cases, though, that's not the case. So what tends to happen is you begin to uh, this 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 feeling of not being good enough begins to permeate various areas of your life, your relationships, your work, and it's usually not until you're in a really bad state that somebody else spots it and then you start on the you know journey of trying to find help. How should it work ideally? I was giving a talk um, in front of the big banks over here a few weeks ago and it was really fascinating because they were all like talking about, oh yes, we have like yoga and this and that. And I was like, great. But when you send out an email like 11 o'clock at night, do you say, please don't respond to this email. I'm sending it out now. You can respond tomorrow because if you're my superior and I get an email at 11 o'clock at night, how's that going to affect my well-being <laughs> when I'm supposed to be winding down? I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Spencer needs me to, right? So it's little things like that. It's also obviously mindfulness works wonderful for some people, right? Being able to have access to a third party you can speak to, a professional that you can speak to is wonderful, having that. So it's a multifaceted thing, but you need, we need structures in society because at the moment, Spencer, here's the issue. Psychology is very reactive. So it's almost as if, if this is really good mental health and, you know, and, and this is normal mental health and this is bad mental health, we only look at it when we go from bad to okay ultimately want to go from okay to thriving. We want to thrive, right? So, you know, I was so excited to do this podcast today and I feel really engaged with it. You can imagine how different I would have felt or you would have felt if we weren't thriving, if like between here and then I felt less than in whatever area of my life that I wasn't on top of things, that that I had an unaddressed mental health condition. There's, there's no way. So therefore, you're not going to have those sort of knock-on um, even though those, not just the dopamine, the serotonin effects, but even those opportunities that you expect in life when you connect and you meet people. So it's critical to be proactive. And that means not just looking at a psychologist as the emergency room you go to when there's blood gushing out of your head, but sometimes the personal trainer that you go to, because you know what? I want to run that five minute mile by the end of the, you know, the summer. So I go to a personal trainer every day at five o'clock in the morning. So I wake up 4.30 and I make a video on my way to the gym every single day that I post on my Instagram stories. And I invite anybody that follows me to come for free and train with us at that time, all paid by me. And occasionally some people show up, okay, occasionally. But most people are like, what the FNL are you doing getting up at that time of day? Why are you doing it? And I'm like, be very clear on this. I need this. Mm. And I will not let him down, okay? He's prepared to get up and be there at five o'clock. Mm. I'll be there at five o'clock. But I need it because my day is immeasurably better mm. if I do this. Mm -hmm. I feel engaged. I feel alive. I feel like my body has come alive, okay? And for three years I was doing it and there weren't really many different results, mm. you know? Mm. Um, I was just fit. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's all it was. But it, but it was critical to my well-being. Like critical and it was way more important to way more important to my mental health than it was to my physical health and I think there's a little bit what do they say um you you, you can't out exercise a bad diet mm -hmm. yeah and so there's it's very similar to that because if you eat the wrong food then you're still going to get fat mm -hmm. or you're not going to lose any weight and and I learned that as well you know mm -hmm. you had the right food and hey diddly did it all comes yeah. off and yeah. ta-da all that stuff they've been telling you so I found this tool that helps me, mm -hmm. but I know it helps everybody else as well as me because I'm a better version of me because of that. But when I look at most people, <clears throat> 
One of the biggest challenges I see them face is their, their, their psychology around money and the impact that money has on them in their lives. So they have this salary, and I don't know, let's say they earn $100,000 a year, $8,333 a month, and they've got, to make, they've got to make that money last. They've got to live their lives. They've got to give their wife some. They've got to pay the mortgages and all that kind of shenanigans, uh, pay for this kids' schools, and they've got to live. And invariably, they don't, they don't live very well when they're mm. in that structure. And they, they've, got this, they've got this budget that they've got to stick to. And they want a pay rise, and the pay rise nine times out of ten is not a pay rise because it would be nice to have more money. It's pay rise because my credit card's building up, and you know I've got to deal with that. This whole relationship with money, with people at work, and people trying to to understand how to run it, seems to be something that causes a huge amount of arguments in the, in the home, mm. okay? But, you know, who's in charge of the money? Who's badly spending? I literally had somebody the other day, somebody I know, I'm not going to say who it was. She wanted to invest some money. She was talking to him about investing money, and her husband was on the, on the Zoom as well. She called me two days later, and she said, I found out something. He has been trading online. And he's lost £150,000. And he was trading. I thought he was doing something really good. And so I let him get on with it, you know. He told me he was trading. He lied to me about what he was doing. Mm. He founded it. Could have stopped this. It's not just his money. It's our money. And if she wasn't the human being that I know she is, she could have easily allowed that to end their relationship. Mm -hmm. So money seems to kind of permeate every aspect of people's lives yeah well because money's never money's never just money money is control it's identity it's power it's fear um it's 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 not it's not that number it's not that paper it's what it signifies and to your point i think it also very much speaks to other variables within a relationship um that talk about the health of a relationship right so risk how do we take risks how are we careful how how and when i say careful how do we care for our families right so is this idea that um i'm being prudent by by not doing something am i being prudent by taking the risk it it, it goes down to ideology and very interestingly i think that people aren't very well educated in, in fiscal knowledge right we don't learn it at school like so unless you go off and do a finance degree i guess like most of us just you know pick it up from our parents or figure it out as we go along i think we're also living in a time where um, we have never, I mean, we're comparative creatures, right? As human beings, we walk into a room and we compare. It used to be that we'd look to our left and right, right? Do I look like my neighbor? Am I, you know, smarter, prettier, taller, shorter, whatever, rich or poor? Now we're comparing to the literal superlatives of everyone's life, right? We're comparing to people who have, you know, are around the world that will never meet their airbrushing, not just their appearance, but their life. So we constantly have this sense of, of feeling less than. I think it's it's definitely a big part of the mental health crisis. I mean, I, I think, look, I've 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 been hugely involved, like in, in a lot of, in sort of studying how our technology has outpaced our psychology and our sociology, and and I feel that uh, clearly a lot of the mental health issues that we've seen come from this, come from the comparing, come from not feeling good enough, come from the constant sense of I'm not enough, and therefore. 
when I have the opportunity to invest in something that's actually probably kind of more gambling than really investing because it's all about doing this as quickly as possible, then I'll do it not because I'm a bad person, not because I disrespect my, in this case, my wife or my family, but because I feel that's what I need to do. And and we're not having these conversations as often as we should in the way that we should. And, and, I, and I think there's a lot to be said about about thinking about those parents out there raising their kids, kind of having conversations about that, of, you know, of buying into the smoke and mirrors of social media, but then also buying into the smoke and mirrors of what I ought to be before I, you know, I feel okay about who I am. Stress is um, a word that's used, but reducing stress, if at all possible, would make life so much easier for everybody. We see, as I mentioned earlier, the 50 to 55 year old men that are that are taking their own lives. And if you think about and I don't know the data on this, but if you think about why they would do that, you know, I, 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 I know people that get to a certain point in their lives where they then stop and look back. They're often in their late 40s. They mm-hmm. stop and look back and they're like, I didn't think it was going to pan out this way. I didn't really expect it i thought when i started out after leaving college Mm. at 21 years old that i was going to have this hockey stick trajectory Mm. and yada 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 but they didn't and there's some disappointment that comes with that maybe maybe the fear or some sense of failure yeah now that happens maybe there's you know i haven't managed my money the right way as well Mm -hmm. you know or maybe there is i've been married to the same woman for the last 20 years and she wasn't the one i was supposed to marry Mm. or this isn't because we can always find faults in everybody after 20 years can't we then the way that the modern world works is different when it comes to work because the stress that comes from work is different to my dad who was at the same company for 35 years Mm -hmm. and didn't ever fear his job. Mm. He might have feared a new manager coming in or a new director coming in that didn't have the same kind of personality as him and they maybe clashed a little bit but didn't fear for his job. But people nowadays, you know, change jobs with more frequency than ever. I worked for the same company and helped build that for 16 years. And then I lost my job in 2012 after having a fallout with the CEO. And that was my darkest period by far. Mm-hmm. Now, with all that's happened in the whole world of mental health, or this workplace culture and understanding people and caring for people, I wonder if that would have been different in 2012 if it had existed, mm-hmm. rather than going, you're this and you're gone, rather than going, what's wrong? You know, can we try and understand you better? You know, could should we put a bit of time into Spencer and try and see what we can do to to yeah. to, to help him? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Imagine not just how different, perhaps for you, but for for that company. Clearly, if this is something that you built and was successful, what a waste! What a waste that they're not able to ask the right questions. You know, we're not algorithms. You know, we're not robots. We're human beings, and and we know enough now about the the human condition about psychology and mental health, that if you get most things, if you address them, the earlier the better, you can have huge positive changes. And to your point, Spencer, about what, what is stress, at its basest level, stress or anxiety is is the, the differential between the resources I have to cope with something and the thing that I have to cope with. So if I feel like I'm someone who's resilient that can cope with a lot, then whatever's out there, if the story I'm telling myself is like, okay, there's a fire, I need to put the fire out. I'm good at, you know, I know I've got the water here, I've got the foam here, whatever else, I've got that. If the story that I'm telling myself 
is I'm depleted. There's nothing in me. It can be the smallest stressor. It can be the smallest thing. And that can be the thing that tips me over. So, you know, it's such a catchphrase, isn't it? Oh, it's stress that causes, it's stress that causes that. Stress is an intangible thing. And it very much is this notion that something's going to happen and I won't be able to cope. And that's where anticipatory anxiety comes from, right? Something's going to happen. And per, I don't know what was, uh, you know, going on in 2012. But just imagine if if there was this idea that whatever happens, there's a solution to every problem. Just, just imagine that. And you know what, Spencer? You're not alone. We'll figure it out. Just the notion that there's a solution to every problem, which, frankly, there is. <laughs> you know, you sit down, you look at it, you figure it out, you know. Um, but, yeah, very sadly, it's, it's rarely like life. That. When you when you look at great leaders, and you think about a great leader that you know and you've worked and been exposed to in your time, who was that great leader for you, and what were his characteristics? That were, what was it about him that inspired you? I kind of think of my uh, my mentor. He was my um, he was my PhD supervisor, and I think what inspired me was that he wasn't typical by the book. Rob was fabulous. Remember we were just- so everyone so we know so he knows what's his full name. Robert Bohr, Professor Robert Bohr. Okay. I love him to this. He's, he's an awesome human. He was um, he was my PhD supervisor. And I remember he's just quite, just very not afraid to not think like everyone else. And just in a, in a very sort of, and in a way that, that allowed you to not make everything like and catastrophize about things. So he just had a way of, of viewing issues in a positive way. Um, yeah, in a positive way. So I remember like sort of choosing, we'd choose conferences and you'd be like, obviously you choose conferences based on their sort of their academic sort of, you know, really what they, what's going on. But also there's some great shopping towns and some great weather. So we can choose conferences based on like, you know, where they're based as well, which for like a young sort of PhD student, I was like, damn, this is interesting. He was also somebody that was unapologetic about success, right? So he was a psychologist and, you know, very much about, you know, caring community. It's amazing work. This was back in the days that he did when, when you know, AIDS was very sort of stigmatizing and stigmatized. And he had some fascinating work on kind of that destigmatization. But I think also um, he was wonderful at remembering who all this work was for, right? So yes, we write the books and we do the talks and that's great, but it matters to the person on the ground. So that, that, that beautiful compassion that he had for people while also holding himself up to this standard for professionalism and being unapologetically willing to do things differently and be ambitious. So I think for me, it's it's Rob. <laughs> Your nonverbal communication, as you just told, talked about, Rob, is on fire. Is that, <laughs> anyone that's not watching this right now and you're listening to this, this is really interesting watching you you just came alive for that second then when yeah. you were talking about him it clearly meant a lot to you yeah? uh, so much so much uh, it just he's yeah still a friend still a, a big I mean I remember the first paper I published you know I, I, I gave in an essay and he was like this is really good you should publish it so this idea that again being doing okay to thriving where would I've had the, the not, forget the confidence not the thought to publish it the first book I wrote you know was with Rob's, you know, you should write a book about this. This, this is, People need to know this. Again, there was this sense of if anyone else can do it, why not you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely you can. So, and this is being, when we see this, how we're reflected in others' eyes is so important. Like, don't you think so, Spencer? If you kind of think of the people who have mattered to you, it's what they see when they look at you. And sometimes it's not what you see in yourself, but it's, it's, it's profoundly 
uplifting when someone sees something that you didn't think was there. Okay, so I'm going to get a whiteboard, imaginary whiteboard right now, and we're going to design together what we think great, a great leader should be in business. So if we're going to put that together, in fact, I'm going to do it on my remote. <laughs> so if we're going to build or, or design, sorry, a great leader, what do you think a great leader in terms of characteristics, uh, behaviours, should have you know i i've been a psychologist for a, a long time now if i had to pick one trait because i you know it's i've had this amazing career where I've, across from me i've sat i've had everyone from nobel uh, i mean what do you call it? new york times bestsellers to like leaders of industry so it's always on my mind when i write up my notes what what makes people good at life i would say the number one trait to being good at life a good leader adaptability because Nothing's promised. If you can roll with the punches, 2012, you didn't be, you weren't like, I'm done. It was a dark moment, but you rolled, right? I nearly killed myself. But then? Well, I recovered. There you did. And did you adapt? Of course. Was a new, you had, I had no choice but to. Well, thank God you knew that that was the choice, right? Out there. So adaptability, that I can prepare, you and I, like, you know what I mean? We can prepare to the cows come up with what we're going to speak about. But look, the conversation's going where it's going because that's the way that life works. What do I know, though, about myself? I know that wherever the conversation goes, I I, I know my stuff. And if I don't, I'll be honest and say, hey, can we go on to another question? So that, that's adaptability. Adaptability is a sense that I will control the stuff I can, absolutely, and the stuff I can't, I will not worry about. Adaptability is I will pivot as and when things change. Governments, the weather, the, the, the social norms. I mm -hmm. will pivot. Adaptability also speaks to confidence in myself. And here's the other thing for a true leader. Confidence. I think we all speak about competence, right? Confidence or competence? That's my point. Ah. A, that, so we speak about competence all the time. Well, mm -hmm. you want someone that's really done this before, is really competent. Yeah. Research shows competence is great. However, true confidence, when I say true confidence, not bluster of like, oh, I'm going to put this on. But this idea that whatever happens, I'll be able to cope. Confidence is integral. Um, one of my favorite studies uh, around this, this is, this is fascinating. This kind of speaks to the differences between men and women as well. Hewlett Packard. Um, for years wanted to have like, um, be sure that they were inclusive and they had as many women and men sort of in higher positions. And it was really weird because they would recruit the same amount of girls and boys and they would see them going through, but then upper echelons, it tended to be men. They're like, what's happening? What, what's going on here? So they pull the, um, the files to see about people applying for internal promotions. And they find that when an internal promotion comes up, that there's many more men than women applying. And they go and they, they research this and they find out that for a woman to apply for a post, she felt she had to have 100% of everything that that job description asked for. For a man to apply, what was the percentage that he felt he had to have? Half. In the region, just, just under 60. However, they excelled. Why? Because that confidence wasn't bluster. So when they said, I don't know, you know, speaks French. They might have had high school French, but they felt, look, if I do this in time, I'll do, do that, you know, that French course, I'll make sure that I have one of my yeah. PAs. That could... So they were problem solving. They were thinking around it. So confidence is huge. I think the other thing that I would have for this wonderful whiteboard leader is, um, is humanity, is, um, is empathy, right? So we speak about IQ a lot, and we know that if you have a high IQ and you're highly conscientious, you're probably going to succeed. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't think we speak enough about that charisma that comes with EQ, with that emotional intelligence, with that ability to, I'm speaking to you, but I feel I can read the situation and you're a bit off. So maybe I stop for a second and ask how you're doing. Maybe I really listen. <laughs> maybe I really listen when you tell me how you're doing. And maybe the next time I see you, I ask you again. Just imagine that. Imagine someone in a position of power in your life, a mentor, a boss, a teacher, who doesn't see this one-dimensional Spencer's here to do X and Y, but sees all of, <laughs> all of you. That kind of empathy, that kind of EQ. I think if you get those three things right, you'd have a... Do great leaders just... show a degree of vulnerability? They do, but again, the vulnerability that they show is, is solution-focused. So there's a difference between saying, there's a difference between pain and suffering, right? So being in pain and making space for that pain is absolutely integral to the human experience and to getting better. Wallowing, however, is different. Wallowing is marinating in that pain, right? So it becomes this vulnerability, becomes my raison d'etre, it becomes the thing that I, that's not what you want. What you want is, this is tough. And I'm saying it and I'm going to make space for it. And this is what I need for people to do. And then you model appropriate behavior. So there is that distinction. That distinction is important, though. Hmm. When we, when we, there's a guy called, uh, what's his name? Cameron Herald, who wrote a book called The COO Alliance, where he teaches um, the, the number two in a company, basically, mm. rather than the number one. Mm. And I said, what's the most important thing for a leader in business? He said, to give a damn. <laughs> He's like, you just need to care about people because if you truly care about people, they will notice. Of if you're insincere, you know, there was a guy whose office in, I was at in Dubai the other day and we, he was showing me around the office and I was like, man, how many people work in your company now? He said, I think there's 700. I'm like, I, guess, I don't know anyone's names anymore. And he was walking around he was like, and, and some people recognised me and so they were like saying hello. And as he walked around, I was looking at these people and I think, I wonder what it would feel like for them if he went, hey, Joe, yeah. how you doing? You know, you're, you, he owns this company with all these people and you walked around and he it it, it, it just didn't know their names. Yeah. And I know for sure that would have an impact on me, mm -hmm. you know. Course. Now it's actually the company where my daughter works. Is it? Oh no, I'm giving that away now. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to hear this now, and obviously he knows her mm -hmm. um, because she's my daughter, and I've known her for a long time. But I just, you know, even if you're not good with names, they're your people. That's it. And you, I don't think you can hide behind I'm not good with names when they're your people. No. You know, you make it your business too. Well, yeah, it's you know you're you're. They need to be bigger than the work they do, right? That's we all need to be bigger than the thing we do, right? <laughs> we all need to. Well, just I, I think I, I don't know about you, but it's like belonging really matters. Mm, mm. It's like it's really important to feel like you belong somewhere, and it's important to feel like you, you, you're valued and you're worthy, and Absolutely. and and whether that's in a relationship or in a workplace, it's like if you don't belong. You know, ask anyone, anyone that's been fired, where you've gone from a place that you've mm. worked and you've enjoyed and you're or made redundant. You know, uh, I, I talk about this quite a bit. Danielle, my business partner, her father was a coal miner. Okay. A horrible job. Yeah. In a coal mine. <laughs> two miles underground every day. But there was a football team. 
a social club, a bar, a restaurant cafe, um, a ladies' cake baking thing. There was the rugby club, the cricket. The whole village was a community community. around the coal mine. When they took the coal mine away, all of a sudden that stopped. And everybody's sense of belonging when this place that they'd belong. Why would you work two miles underground digging black soot, you know, going in your throats and, you know, all day, every day? A rotten job. There's got to be some upside for that, you know. Is the pay that great? Well, the pay can't be that great to do just that job. But you get this whole community that comes with it. You belong. Absolutely. And and you feel valued. You're part of a team. And I, I can't, you know, when that happened to me, in 2012, I was on gardening leave for a mm. year. Mm. And when I signed and agreed to do the gardening leave for a year, I thought that was a great idea. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, there's all these people around the world that are friends of mine. I've not spent enough time mm-hmm. with them. I've been a bad friend. I'm going to go spend some time with these people. And I went and spent some time. And after six weeks, I was climbing the walls. Yeah. But I, I still the had structure an, was gone. A, another 10 and a half months. I had this no, no, no I didn't belong anywhere. Yeah. And people were like, oh, that's, you're free. That's what you're, you're free. You can do this great stuff. And I'm like. Yeah, but it's also about identity, right? Who, yeah, who am I? Who am I? Because this is, identity is a really interesting thing, right? Because it's, it's at the same time, the thing that makes us unique, but it's also the thing that binds us together, right? So within, just imagine in that moment, you lost both of those things. So you lost your identity as a member of this, this community to your point or this job. But also, if we had like the Spencer pie here, I would guess like one of the biggest slices at that time, if you're working the hours you were working, it was your job, right? Yeah, so I, by far. By far. So I, we take that slice away. And the other slices you probably hadn't invested in just by virtue of time as much, whatever they were, right? Mm-hmm. So that then leaves us feeling less, it leaves us feeling a withdrawal. And here's the thing, people don't recognize it. You know, this is it's almost like a breakup. People are like, why don't people get over breakups really easy? Because when you break up, what it does to your identity, as I've described, is so bad that you often feel the same, the same withdrawal symptoms that you do when you're uh, withdrawing from drugs. We see this sort of similar action on the brain. And I think when you're really invested in your, in your career, in your identity, in your life, and that's taken away, it's withdrawn, then not only is there a change, but there's like a gaping hole that you that used to be filled effortlessly that now you have to look at. And then of course we have the paradox of choice. So to your point, oh, well, the world's my oyster. But the world's my oyster goes from being about a ton of opportunities to being I'm drowning and I don't know which way to look, right? So we we do need that structure. We do need that community. And we do need to lean into identities kind of, speaking about sort of our mental health as well, where how we value ourselves is part of the work we do, but also goes into the human being that we are. I am a good, whatever, father, friend, accountant, doctor, lawyer. It's bigger than just what I'm doing in that moment. It's interesting you say that because all of the, all of that really resonates with mm. me as, as, as a business owner. It really yeah. resonates with me as an employee before, you know, it, it, it matters to me. My question then as a 53-year-old dinosaur, let's put it that way, is then if those things are so important, which they are to me for sure, why would anybody want to work from home? Well, we're, we're getting more and more kind of, I think, data in that I'm not sure working from home is, is great um, across the board the way that it happened. I, I think that... Um, 
I think number one is sort of, I think it promotes potentially avoidance in certain situations. I think it takes away, well, I was telling you about my, my mentor being, you know, somebody that I, you know, I met at university and then work with. So, you know, that serendipity, we were speaking before the podcast started about how many times we'd been like in work situations and then other things that come off. So that serendipity of learning from someone or connecting and meeting and growing, I think really critically as well. Um, I think too much comfort isn't good for us. We know this. We know this psychologically. We know this physiologically, like all the data on aging now as well. We know that you you want those kind of cells to work properly. You know, make sure you're you're exercising and hurting those muscles. Make sure you're either too cold or too hot in a sauna. Like make sure you're uncomfortable. Make sure you're, you know, you're, you're eating the right way. It's the same way psychologically. What is the only way I increase my confidence? The only way is doing the thing I didn't think I could do. If I'm doing the comfortable thing every day, not only am I not increasing my confidence and growing, I'm actually going to go backwards. So while I see there was potentially a place for work from home in different different life stages, so I can certainly see that perhaps for a period, you know, um, around child rearing, there's a way of kind of working around that. I think there are times in life, I think especially for young people, my goodness, like my my daughter's still studying, but I, I you know, again, I can't imagine a world where she finishes university and then she's just behind the screen without people that can lift her up and inspire her and allow her to grow. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I think we, that's, we're going to have to reverse that at least to some extent. So valuable what you say there. You can take it to another another point. You can say, I work from home and that bloke Bob in the office really gets on my nerves the end it now doesn't change because my narrative will be that bob gets on my nerves but we're in the same office together and we're at the water water cooler and i'm like hey linda that bob's getting on my nerves and you're like bob's great what are you talking about well this happened with bob you're misreading it spence come on man bob's an awesome guy i then walk off back to my desk and maybe i have a different view on it and less chance of something to fester grow and and become a bigger issue than it really is but and how good is it to, to be able to figure out how to deal with someone you don't like. Maybe you genuinely don't like Bob, but you know what? In life, we don't like everybody we're around. It's important to be able to tolerate that. The idea of never being uncomfortable and kind of, you know, making sure we kind of tick every box. No, to, to embrace uncertainty, to embrace discomfort is, is precisely the way that we grow. It's precisely the way that we grow. Negotiations. When you think about having to negotiate your position, your situation, negotiate up and negotiate down in in, in a workplace environment. What advice have you got for people that are in that type of situation? Because, you know, if somebody wants a promotion or a pay rise, you know, that can fill them overwhelmingly with dread and fear about, you know, well, they're never going to want to give me a promotion anyway, are they? They never want to give me a pay rise. I'm not worth it, blah, 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 all that negative stuff, which puts them in a place where a lot of the time they wouldn't even dare ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What type of mindset challenges do you think people have and what kind of tools do they need? And uh, or is it just, whoa, come on, yeah. just pull those, sle- pull those sleeves up and bite <laughs> stiff up a lip, let's charge. What is it? I think you need to remember that nobody speaks to you more than you speak to yourself. So what you're telling yourself about anything in life, including a promotion matters. It reminds me of another kind of quite seminal study in this field where they asked 
um, men and women separately to, to, to give a metaphor for promotion. Men said it's like going in for a ball game. It's like going in and like having like a tennis match. Women said it's like going to the dentist. Now just think of the difference in that state of mind. I'm coming to say, hey, Spencer, I want, you know, a promotion in this wonderful new company you have. And I'm seeing it as like, hey, me and Spencer are going to go and it's going to be like a tennis match. I'm going to show him my backhand. I'm showing him how good I am. Or I go in and I'm like, oh my God, he's going to pull my, this is going to be like, it just imagine my body language. Imagine the words I use. Imagine how quickly when you go, ah, Linda, I'm not sure. I'm like, okay, see you, tomorrow, see you Monday, bye. Right? So no one speaks to you more than you speak to yourself. So if you, if absolutely, I think, look, very basic negotiation. I think this is a, not just in jobs for across life. You, you can't negotiate unless you're willing to walk away. Now, I know that sounds extreme, but ultimately, what does that mean? That means you need to know your value. So I'm coming in to see you. I know who I am. I know what I bring to the table. You also are much more likely to come out of something if it's a win-win situation. If we are both working to a place where we both get something out of this, right? So I'm asking you for more money or a different title. What's in it for you? And the third thing, and I think this is really critical, is the mindset you go in with. Go in with a mindset that Maybe we're not like this, right? Maybe we're standing next to each other. Maybe here's the problem. Instead of taking it between us, which is I need more money or I need a different title. Maybe I'm like, hey, sit next to me, Spencer. This is what I need. How do I get there? Can you help me? So instead of like, will you allow me? Can you mentor? Can you figure it? Can we figure this out together? So whether you're an employer or an employee or whatever we're talking about, if we can move, I do this with couples therapy, right? <laughs> if we can move the problem from in between us and be like, okay, here's, here it is. Let's look over there. That makes all the difference because, again, it changes the dynamic. We're in this together. We want to get to a better place. And ultimately, there's a solution to this problem. Brilliant. Brilliant. It makes me think about asking for a promotion. If you go into that promotion conversation and you believe that asking for a promotion might solve a problem for the boss. Yes. You know, imagine how you're going to feel when you ask for promotion. Hey, look. <laughs> I'm thinking about that job. I don't have it yet. I'd like to have it. But if I had that job, would that allow you to move up? That's it. You know, so if you, again, how that's you position it. it. Tennis match, ball game versus going to the dentist. That's really profound for me. That resonates quite a lot. Okay, let's talk about um, technology and let's talk about AI. ChatGPT became a thing and people are now using all of these different tools, which means now people in, in the workplace are, are fearing mm. what potentially could be. They're fearing this, is it going to take over my job or um, it's too overwhelming because I'm hearing a bit of this. It's too overwhelming to learn myself. Mm. You know, it's bigger than me. So why should I bother? It's going to take it anyway. How do, how do people or how should people, uh, employees, be thinking about this? And how should in, well, what should an employer do to help allow me to feel a little bit better that it's not going to, it's not going to, mm jeopardize all of the years and, and my dedication to this company that I work for so proudly. Look, I, I think there's there's something fundamental about recognizing that, that we're already augmented humans. Look, I've got my phone, even though it's on off, it's like right next to me. You have yours too, right? These digital prostheses that we have, ultimately these they are like prostheses, right? And and we've had them for years now. And, and, you know, we have phantom phone syndrome where we think we've, you know, it's ringing when it's not, or we think we've lost it when we haven't. So the idea that we've been augmented in some way or other is not new. The difference is that we're used to using these technologies and we're not used to using the, the new ones. So I think 
for all intents and purposes, um, if we're not having sort of like a big existential discussion or like, you know, are the machines going to take over and we're talking about day-to-day work, I think you approach this with as much open-mindedness and as much idea of what can I do to make myself more efficient. The efficiency of some of these tools is amazing. So, you know, I I, I use uh, sort of sort of AI to, to help draft emails, which saves me so much t- time. Letters that, you know, would have taken, it just, it just makes it so much easier to have something that's just, that'll look at your syntax. It'll kind of move it around very quickly. Other people who, you know, friends of mine and sort of, uh, you know, who are, even medics sort of answer whether it's dermatology or radiology. I know they, they now augment their own ability to kind of view results with AI. So it's not that it's taken their job. It's just made them more efficient. It's just made them better. And I think there's always opportunities in this disruption, right? There are always opportunities here. Now, I know this is not the internal combustion engine, right? So when people are like, oh, it's fine. It's just like the internal combustion. No, it's not. <laughs> this is huge. This is big. This is moving very fast. But those people that will do well will have a sense of control. And there's no control with kind of putting your hands in your ears and shouting la la la. You need to go in. You need to look at what can I do? Even if it's a small thing, what can I do? How can I learn? How can this one thing help me? Maybe it's just, I get it to do my itinerary for my business trip next week. I'm like, you know what? Here it is. Do something. Start playing around with it because again, the more you engage with these technologies, the greater the sense of volition, the greater sense of volition and control, the lower the anxiety around it. Okay, learning and development. There's, there's, there's wellness, there's learning and development, the two, there's HR, there's these different departments in businesses. Learning and development. Uh, Linda wants a promotion, so she needs to learn how to use Excel Pro. Okay, she needs to go and learn that. So the learning and development part, department take her down there. Um, Linda needs, needs to learn some, some practical stuff. So whatever it may be, learning and development. What role does learning and development have in learning to deal with? with my stress and learning to deal with my negative self-talk, learning to deal with my anxiety in the workplace. What role do you think that that department has or should it, should it come from somewhere else? I think, um, psychoeducational kind of endeavors are hugely important. Um, I think to your point, it's great if Bob learns this new version of Excel. It's even better if Bob is able to manage his anxiety or his stress or his shyness or his lack of confidence and therefore perform and be more highly functioning, not just in, in work, but as a human being as a whole. That, that helps him. That will help his team. That will kind of imbue that kind of confidence around other people. So absolutely, there's a place for that. And look, there's, I've always wondered, right? We spent all this time with our kids kids in schools, teaching them the names of like obscure, like, I don't know, rivers and mountain ranges, which they can Google in a second. Just imagine if we taught them basic CBT, just the ability to spot when I'm thinking negatively, right? Just the ability to be like, am I catastrophizing there? Am I polarizing the way I'm seeing this? Am I projecting my stuff onto you? Are you saying this, but I'm kind of displacing all the anger I felt? Just, just those sort of really basic things. Or this idea of self-talk, you know, is this a self-limiting thought? You say to me, Linda, can we meet at 5 a.m.? And I'm like, oh, I'm not a morning person. The difference between saying, I'm not a morning person, I can't do that. And you know what? I don't love mornings, but I'll try. It's huge. Again, great data on, you know, as an aside around these self-limiting thoughts. If you are trying to eat better, if someone offers you a piece of cake and you say, I can't have it, 
that same person offers you a piece of cake and you say, I don't want it, you're about 70 times more likely to stick to your diet if you say, I don't want it, as opposed to, I can't have it. Really? Really. That's what I've been getting wrong. That's it. That's it. There, it's all solved. <laughs> the rest, rest we of the podcast got this. is never relevant, folks. <laughs> this, this is a... Focus on the cupcake. <laughs> um, but again, language matters. What we say to ourselves matters. The way that we think, thinking about thinking. So yes, to your point, I think if there are any business leaders out there looking at this, where they put in these psychoeducational programs, whether it is part of the onboarding process, part of the ongoing process that you have, whether it's a line manager, someone in, in HR or someone outside, checking in with someone monthly going, let's take your temperature. What's been going on? What are your goals? How would, you know, how can we work on this? The, the effect that it'll have, not just because it's, you know, that's how we, we speak about it in psychology. There's the individual and then it kind of goes wider. There's the family, there's the organization, there's psychology. The benefit goes up. Goes to everybody. Goes to everybody. Linda, you've got so many answers and so much wisdom. It's been great picking your brain here on the show today. <laughs> A couple of things before I finish. You have come from living in Canada. You've got Greek Cypriot blood. You've been exposed in the United States and the UK now for many, many years. When, when you look at these types of challenges that, that, that organisations face along the way, who's the most developed and who's the furthest behind? And do you notice that across countries? Yeah. Um, I, I think, look, I think stigma is different in different parts of the world around illness, around mental health, around all these things. I think we've done great work here in the UK. Uh, over the past few years, like I said, I remember when I first started out, you know, that psychologist on the telly, you know, speaking about these things, it was, it was almost, you know, it was few and far between. I think now we have a language for this. We have, again, going back to that phrase, that sense of entitlement over our condition. I think um, in Cyprus, we're, we're starting to see a change. It's not where, where the UK is. Um, I think Canada has has done better as well. So I think, you know, it depends on, on country to country and we understand why that is, you know, whether it's a closed community, an open community, a community that, that speaks to kind of, we need to keep our problems to ourselves. We don't air them, we do. Um, and very critically though, I think there is scope for all of us to feel better, to do better, to be kinder. Um, and there's a way of translating this where, wherever you are. So I know this goes out around the world, but there's a way of translating this wherever you are, of course. I think that we've got to understand that, and I think we a lot of the time it's done like this, it's um, the, the employee has a problem, it's the responsibility of the employer to solve the problem or at least invest in solving the problem. But, but we have to put the onus on the employee just as much the individual just as much on saying you know you have to be responsible it's not just somebody else's problem that's that, that, that you've got you know it's your problem so understanding the importance of everyone taking responsibility for whatever needs to be done i think is critical when you talk about um openness you know people people not 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 speaking up about how they feel it's because of their interpretation of what someone might do or say whether that's in a business or in a family mm -mm. You know, and, and you could take two, you could take my two parents. You know, my mum would put her arms around me and be like, Oh, really? Is that the problem? My dad would be like, <laughs> You you call that a problem? You know, and so, yeah. so just, just in that environment exists. But I, I know for sure that if companies decide 
that their employees are the most important facet. And you can demonstrate to companies that if you do a really good job of engaging your employees and giving them the things that they need to make them thrive, then you build a more profitable business. 100%. And at the end of the day, what is this all about anyway? You know, why do you get into business? Why do you have shareholders? Why do you raise capital? Why do you sell whatever it is you sell? Because you want to create something that has legacy and, and creates wealth for people. Absolutely. And look, to your point as well, there is no power without responsibility. Taking responsibility is empowering. So you're right, as an individual taking responsibility, but also as a business leader taking responsibility, right, for doing that. Because, you know, only through that do you have a sense of control over what's going on. So, yeah, and again, there is this sense that this is not about just being okay. Let's thrive. Let's be the best version of ourselves, of our job or our corporation, whatever it is. Let's move from okay to really well. Linda, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. It's been great chatting to you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Spencer. 